Episode number 18 of the Media Narrative Podcast, a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. I'm Rob Hoschild. I'm really talking about self-knowledge and self-mastery. So how do we understand ourselves and how do we, how do we permit ourselves to achieve our own aims for ourselves, whatever those aims may be? Gretchen Rubin left the law profession years ago to write books. Her first satirized the self-help industry. Then she wrote two biographies before following those up with The Happiness Project. That one began a series of books that are among the best you'll find in the personal development category. Four in a row, in fact, have been New York Times bestsellers. She's also got a popular and award-winning podcast called Happier that she co-hosts with her sister, so, yeah, I'm feeling pretty happy myself about having Gretchen Rubin on the show. In a moment, we'll sit down with Gretchen Rubin. I'll ask her how an expert in happiness cultivates habits, ones in particular that allow her to pump out so much great work. I'll ask her what she says to skeptics of the whole idea of seeking happiness. And she'll also talk about her decidedly analog solution to contending with all of the news and media coming at us these days. We met at Podcast Movement 18 just a couple of months ago in Philadelphia. I was at a session and I was really pleased to see you sit down right next to me, ask a question, identify yourself. And I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, the podcast and the book. So it was really great to meet you there. And if I remember right, you were not there as a speaker. You were there as an attendee. Is that correct? Yeah, I've spoken in the past, but this year I was just there uh, to listen. It's so interesting. I mean, your podcast has been downloaded more than 40 million times, so it makes sense that you would have spoken in the past. So why did you go uh, just to listen this time around? Well, you know, I think with kind of everything that I'm doing in book publishing and podcasting, certainly very dramatically in podcasting, like things are changing so fast. And I think it's easy to kind of get comfortable sort of doing the same old thing and not think about like, well, where are people moving forward and what are sort of the the interesting things that I should know about or that are possibilities that are open to me or just like what's really going on. And I feel like... Um, uh, you know, with any conference, you some some th some things are better than others, and I'm always super hopeful. Like I'm I'm like a real Hermione Granger who wants to go to everything. <laughs> right. Um, but I learned a, a ton from it, and then it's just like I got to meet you. I think it's just fun to get a chance to meet other people who are working. It's it's I do a lot of work just by myself, and so I really love the opportunity mm -hmm. to just meet other people who want to talk shop. I love to talk shop, and so something like a conference is a great, great way to learn and just um, engage with other people who are interested in the same things that I am. I was first introduced to your podcast, actually, by my sister, Carol. She had heard it right after it launched. So episode <clears throat> two, episode wow. two, right. That was the one that at the end, you gave a shout out to your mom who came up with this idea of email updates. Yeah. And that's when you and your sister, Elizabeth, who you co-host the podcast, Happier, which is your great podcast about habits and happiness. Um, and we actually implemented that with my mom, my sister ah. Carol, my other sister Nancy and I, and it really changed the way we communicated with our mother. 
And oh, that's so, so nice to hear. It was amazing. Yeah. So I wanted to thank you just for that because it was great timing because she, my mom died a year and a half later, but it, it, oh. it really gave us this closer connection in, in those last 18 months. And it really oh, worked what you said, like using sort of just passing along even mundane information yeah. can be great when you're far apart. Are, are you and your sister still doing that? Yes, we are. It's funny. My sister is like working like 24 seven because she's working on this pilot, The Fix for ABC. So she was actually saying to me, oh, I needed to give myself a demerit on the podcast because I haven't been doing update. But one of the things about update is like we know that all she's doing is working. um, And, 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 you know, she has to kind of uh, take a step back from it and she'll come back. Um, and the rest of us do it. Yeah. Um, no, it is re- one of these really funny things where just the most boring details of your life actually make other people feel like they're just much more in touch with you. Um, it, and it takes very little time and energy, no planning. One of the things we do that I think is great is people don't really respond to it. So you don't see one in your inbox and be like, oh my gosh, now I have to write like a long, thoughtful email back. It's just like, oh, it's so fun. And then you know, you just kind of get a little hit from it and move mm-hmm. on. There's no, there's no work associated with it. Right. Where I think a lot of things, it's like, oh gosh, now I gotta, you know, do something, and <laughs> it's like another thing on the to do list. Yeah, it's like a family broadcast. So great. Yeah. Um, now I'd love to talk or ask you to talk a little bit about your evolution as a writer. Uh, mm. In 2003, after leaving the law profession, you published your first book about Winston Churchill. And then, Ooh, that was my second book. Oh, that was your second book. Okay, so yeah. maybe maybe walk us through that early period and how that evolved into writing the kinds of books you're writing now. So way, way back, I started my career in law. Um, So uh, I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court when I realized that I actually wanted to be a writer. And it was when I was in that clerkship that I got my idea for my first book, which um, when I started, I I will often get, and this happens to me to this day, I'll get obsessed with the subject and I'll take tons of notes about it. Um, And this was happening to me at a level that I had never experienced before. Um, and it did, so I was, and finally I, I realized this is the kind of research a person would do if they they were writing a book and I, I could write that book. Um, and it did turn into my first book, which was called power, money, fame, sex, a user's guide. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love <laughs> writing that book so much. It's like the opposite of the happiness project. Um, and so, and, and that's when I, um, I made the transition and I was lucky because often people know what they want to leave, but they don't know where they want to go or they would like to be a writer, but they don't really know what they want to write about. And I was really fortunate because I was like, I had this, like, it was like the death star pulling me in, you know, with the tractor beam where I was like, I wanted to, I really, really, really wanted to write this book. Mm. I mean, I knew the book I wanted to write. I was like, had done a huge amount of research for it. Um, and so then it was a question of, okay, well, how, how does a person get a book published? And I literally went to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal <laughs> and just followed the directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was my first book. And then I wrote uh, two biographies, a biography of Winston Churchill, as you mentioned, and a biography of JFK. I also did a kind of a... Um, an odd book that I did in collaboration with an artist called Profane Waste, which was all about a, a, a question that obsessed me, which is why would owners destroy their own possessions? Hmm. Um, and uh, But then when I was finishing up the JFK book, I, uh, I was like looking out 
the bus window and I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy, but I never think about how to be happier or even if I am happy. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I got struck by this, you know, kind of obsession, obsessive interest. So I went to the library, got a giant stack of books um, and, and, and started writing uh, and researching about happiness. And it was such a vast, limitless subject. I thought, wow, I should write a book about mm -hmm. my happiness project. And then, um, and in fact, it is such a vast, limitless subject that I have never left it um, ever since. And thank you for that too, because it's been really helpful to me and a lot of other people. In fact, the the Habits book that came out in 2015, Better Than Before, I've yeah. been basically using that as a jumping off guide for some stuff I'm working on oh, myself at the moment. I might ask you about that before we finish up today. Sure. Um, but I want to ask, what do you say to skeptics, if there are any, about the work that you're doing, about these themes of happiness and habits? Mm. When I was in my 30s, I used to not be so into these sorts of books myself. I had worked as a journalist, and I just believed it was all about facts, and I don't need to think about these things. Then I read Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence, and I was really changed by that book. Uh, mm. It transformed the way I worked and mm. in a lot of other ways. And so I sought out books that sort of loosely fall under this sort of self-help category, if that's the way to put it. And uh, so I'm just wondering if you encounter people who who say to you that they're they don't connect with books of this sort and if and if you see it as any part of your job to kind of try to help them see the wisdom and what you're doing. Well, absolutely. There's a lot of people who aren't interested in, in the kind of books that I write, sort of personal development type books, I guess. But I, I would really, if I had to be honest about what I am, I think I'm a moral essayist, but that mm. sounds so boring. I would never <laughs> confess to that. Um, so, you know, some people don't want it. It's like, I don't like mysteries. I don't read mysteries. Like, okay, fine. Like, you know, if you don't, if you're not interested in this kind of stuff, um, then, you know, that's fine. I mean, I try to write something that is as compelling and interesting that I would hope that anybody, if you were like stuck in an, you know, on, on an airplane and my book was the only book that you could read and it wasn't your cup of tea that you would nevertheless find yourself enjoying it and being interested in it because it's just, it's at that level. Of course, that's what everyone, I think every writer would say that they would aspire right. to be something like that. But you're right. I mean, some people are, are, are interested in certain kind of books and not others. Now it is funny how, um, it, it, depending on how you frame it, people, some people are more skeptical than others. Like many people are very skeptical of the idea of happiness. Like they mm -hmm. kind of roll their eyes and they think happiness isn't real or, it, you know, they, or they dispute the vocabulary. They're like, I'm not interested in happiness. I'm interested <laughs> in well-being or, you know, peace. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, we can play that game all day long. I started my career in law. So I know how to argue about the definitions of you know, to, or how to argue about definitions. Right. Um, but then when you're talking about something like habits, well, then that appeals to sort of a different kind of person. Um, because I think what I'm really getting at at the core, and it took me uh, several books to realize this, I'm really talking about self-knowledge and self-mastery. So how do we understand ourselves and how do we, how do we permit ourselves to achieve our own aims for ourselves, whatever those aims may be? And people are very different from each other. They want very different lives. But given that, given that we've got different circumstances, different natures, different temperaments, different interests, how can we have the lives we want? Um, and that is, um, I think, just about everybody is interested in that in some way, even if they get to it. Some people get it to it through habits. Some people get to it through happiness. Mm -hmm. Some people maybe get to it through sort of um, kind of life hacky stuff like uh, better performance, increased productivity. 
Um, some people look at it through kind of a business lens or a health lens or a relationship lens. Because right. um, these ideas are so broad, they cover tremendous amounts of ground. Yeah, it's so true. And uh, I think that idea of moral essayist is is pretty close, you know, because there is an effect that I've had reading your books where I think like, yeah, she is a philosopher in this <laughs> moment right now. Um, so habits. Let's talk about your habits for a minute, if yeah. we could. Uh, you seem to be incredibly productive. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, amazing. Like so, and and you can correct these counts that I did. I just looked at at everything this morning. Uh, by my count, so far this month, September 2018, you've posted seven podcasts, uh, five blog posts, started an online workshop for the Four Tendencies. Uh, you're very active on Facebook. There's episodes of uh, Facebook Live coming and videos. Um, and you've read 15 books so far this yeah. month, maybe more, according to oh, Goodreads. Right? Okay. Well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I counted 15 books on Goodreads. Then you just tweeted something about an hour ago with a picture of five more books. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, that in itself is quite extraordinary. Plus, you're married and you have two daughters. And yeah. so, how do you? get all of this done. Uh, and I'm curious what your daily and weekly uh, sort of schedule and habits look like. Well, one thing I would say about social media generally is um, I think sometimes people, it's very time consuming to kind of understand it and and get up to speed on it and get everything set up. Um, so if you're going into something for the first time, like you're like, I've got to learn Instagram. It, 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 it's, it's a big, that's a big project. Once you have these things figured out, like once now I have Ask Gretchen Rubin Live on Facebook every week, it's like I do it and it takes 40 minutes or whatever to actually do it. But like all I've already figured it out. So I think sometimes when you're looking at what people do, you sort of think you don't realize, well, they've already figured it out, you know, so they know what they're doing. So it's just a question of doing it. Um you know, I am a productive person, and um, part of that is that I'm an upholder, which I talk about in my Four Tendencies book. Right. I'm the kind of person that finds it pretty easy to meet inner and outer expectations. Um, I do what I love, so it's all very kind of like I love it. It's like my cubicle and my sandbox and my treehouse, so that's really fun. Um, a lot of what I do online really feeds into what I write and what I set, talk about on the podcast. So for me, I think for some people, it feels like a distraction. For me, it really feels like it's really opening my world and deepening my understanding of the things. Um, so I get tremendous value out of it in a lot of ways beyond just kind of engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I work a lot. I mean, I do work a lot. I, you know, I get up at 6 a.m. every day and I spend a lot of time working and um and uh, I don't, you know, like even if I'm on vacation or it's a holiday or something, I will work for some part of the day. Mm. Now, the, the reading is this great mystery of my life because <laughs> I I know objectively that I get a lot of reading done. And many people say like, oh, you read so much. So clearly I'm getting a lot of reading done. I feel like I never have time to read. I feel like I'm never reading as much as I want to. Um so it's I, crazy. I it, and yet I look at the books that I've read and I'm like, yeah, I read all those books. Um, Do you so schedule it, the time for reading? When does the reading happen? Um, sometimes I will. Like uh, sometimes I will. Like I really feel like this kind of uh, like I, it. Like I, I feel like a starvation in my soul if I haven't read. So like this weekend, yeah. I was like. I'm in a. I'm like I don't want to plan, make any plans. I like want to sit in, on the couch and like read a book for like six hours, you know. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I will really set aside time for that. Um, sometimes it's travel. A friend of mine, this was like the greatest advice I ever got. She said that when she traveled for work, she only read novels. And so she didn't try to work while she was in transit. And I had never done that much work while I was in transit, but I always felt like I should. 
and I made this mental switch that's I, I only I don't always read novels, but I would only read for fun in transit. And I I travel a fair amount. So I get a lot of reading done while I'm traveling. And so I look for opportunity or like if I'm on the subway, um, like a lot of people would listen to a podcast. Right. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast. I listen to a podcast like when I'm going for my morning walk. But if I'm sitting on the train for a long like to take the subway to Brooklyn, I would bring a book and read a book. So I would mm. use the time in that way. So um so I look for I look for for ways to build it in. Well, it's sort of comforting to hear that you work that much too, that it doesn't just sort of magically no. happen in a few number of hours and that even on vacation you squeeze in a few hours, no. which is often a way that I think I was just on a vacation in Tahoe with my family last uh, August. And every morning I felt like I wanted to go to a coffee shop and spend a couple of hours writing yeah. and working on stuff. Um, I didn't as much as I would like to, but I, I can understand that feeling that you're talking about, that you feel this sense of of lack or loss when when it's not there. So um, that's that's an interesting it, it's comforting to hear you you're in a similar place with that well it's it it the my family's kind of rhythm is helpful for me in that because i'm a very early riser so i will get up at 6 a.m but my family if they're on vacation or it's the weekend or something they don't really get up that early yeah. so i'll get a couple of hours in before it's even part of the day it's not like i have to say like you all go do something <laughs> i'm gonna go to the coffee shop it's like right. i'm up around and, and, and kind of making good use of that time and then mm -hmm. by the time everybody's ready to go to breakfast I'm sort of ready to go to breakfast too. Uh, I, I think it's interesting though that you feel the same way because I think there's sort of this idea in our culture, which is like, if you're going to take a vacation, you should turn off your phone, you should leave behind your laptop, you should totally disengage. And I think for some people, that's really important. I think for other people, um, maybe they don't, that isn't as energizing or as freeing. Um, I would feel less um, energized and like pumped for a vacation if I hadn't, like didn't have my laptop and didn't have my phone that kind of helps me have more fun. I think every people are very different about um, what 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 suits them uh, when they're trying to have a vacation. Thank you, great. I'm gonna keep that in mind next time the family gets together. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that you're an upholder and, yeah. uh, and that relates to your newest book, The Four Tendencies. I actually took the quiz and Ooh, I think I might, I might have cheated because I, I, it came out that I was a questioner. But then as I really started rereading everything in these two books, the, the 2015 book, Better Than Before, and the new book, Four Tendencies, I'm an obliger. I mean, ah. I, I think I'm really an obliger. And it's more that my career has evolved in the last two years from a nine to five situation into where I'm now doing many different things, some of them my own creative projects like this podcast. So I think I'm either going through an evolution toward upholder uh, or questioner, um, or I'm using some of these techniques that you talk about in the book to ensure that I do take care of some of my own goals. So right. um, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that, but maybe it would be good to just quickly break down these four right. tendencies for anyone who's not familiar with it. Yeah. So if anybody wants to take the quiz, which you mentioned, you can take it at quiz.gretchenrubin.com or just go to my website and you can take it. Like I think more than 1.6 million people have taken this wow. quiz now, but I'll give a brief overview. And frankly, a lot of people don't need to take the quiz because they can just tell what they are from right. the brief description. So it has to do with how you respond to expectations. And we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations, like a work deadline and inner expectations, like your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. 
So upholders, which is my tendency, as I mentioned, upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline. They keep the nearest resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important, maybe more important. Then there are questioners. Okay, you raise questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they're making everything an inner expectation. Um, it, they, they tend to resist anything arbitrary or inefficient or unjustified. They always want to know why. And if they're convinced that something makes sense, they will do it no problem. And if they think it doesn't make sense, they will resist. Then there are obligers, which is what you think you are. Right. And that is the biggest tendency for both men and women. Ah. So if you are, you're in good, you're in big company. <laughs> um, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. It's like this was, and I got my insight into this when a friend said to me, I don't understand why I can't exercise. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she did. But when she was trying to go on her own, she struggled. So for instance, if you're a person who wants to create content on your own, you might say like, well, I'm going to create a podcast or I'm going to have a blog where I commit to my readers that I'm going to, I'm going to post at least once a week. So you create a sense of outer expectation by like having an audience. That's one form of outer accountability. Um, and there's many, 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 many forms of outer accountability. And that's really what obligers need to meet their, to meet inner expectations, which for many obligers, like that's a major revelation for them. Um, so that, that is what's missing. Okay. So it's less about, it sounds like perhaps it's less about scheduling in your calendar and uh, committing to a particular time every day than it is having that external accountability. Um, or maybe it's a little bit of both. What do you think? Well, it's what you raise is a very interesting point, which is that obligers are different. Obligers are very susceptible to different kinds of accountability. So some obligers, just the fact that something's on their calendar would make them feel obligated to it. It's like they feel like their calendar itself is is an is an obligation, or like an auto reminder on their phone could trigger this sense of outer accountability. They feel like they say I need to do it, or like I'm being told from the outside. And so for some some it doesn't work because the calendar. You could also for some obligers, they see the calendar as their own. It doesn't have uh, weight. So I think for anyone who's an obliger or working with an obliger, you have to look for, well, what are the things that work? For instance, obligers often don't get outer accountability from a sweetheart for a very romantic reason. They say, my sweetheart is like me. So I will ignore my sweetheart just like I would ignore me. So a, a sweetheart counts as inner. So you have to look around, like does paying for a class make you less likely or more likely to do something? For some people, it actually makes them less likely. They hmm. kind of feel like they've done it if they paid for it. It's not working as outer accountability. So so yeah, so, so some people can, or the future self, uh, future Gretchen will be very disappointed if now Gretchen doesn't work on her book. For some obligers, that works very well. For other obligers, it doesn't. So you really have to just experiment um, to see what are the form of accountability. Calendar can work for some, not for all. And then the final one, just to round it out, yeah. um, is rebel. So rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. Um, they can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't like to tell themselves what to do. They, they For instance, they really value spontaneity. And they wouldn't do something like sign up for a 10 a.m., spin class on Saturdays because they don't know what they want to do at 10 a.m. on Saturday. And the idea that somebody's expecting them to show up uh, would just annoy them. So that's the smallest tendency. Obliger 
is the biggest tendency, rebel is the smallest tendency. Interesting. So, and, and you know, you know about these numbers because you, as you said, more than a million people have done the quiz. So this has generated a lot of data from you. You're a research well, enthusiast. Well, no, and, let me, oh, let okay. me caution you because any questioner <laughs> and many other tendencies will say, but what about selection bias? Uh, yes, my friends, right. <laughs> I know all about selection bias. So I have my 1.6 million. I put that to the side and I actually paid to have a representative sample group in the United States of adults, all, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, variables put in there um, to try to get something that would could be scientifically accurate. So do not fear. Uh, my numbers are not generated by, um, by the by the by the uh, by the quiz that's online that anyone can take. Okay, good to know. So, but but <laughs> what what you did learn then from that research is that there's more obligers than in any other category. Yes. And then what's the breakdown after that? So, obliger is the biggest one for both men and women, and then it's questioner. So, you either your questioners and obligers are the biggest ones. And so, if you're designing a curriculum or you're thinking about how to word a sign or you're thinking about how to communicate, you really want to think a lot about questioners and obligers because that those are big groups. Then the smallest is rebel. And then my my tendency, the upholder tendency, is only slightly larger. So in a way, those are the, I think those are the two kind of extreme personality types. They're kind of at the, at the opposites. Um, they're not as big, um, and, and they're very different from each other. They they're, they're, they're really see the world in a different way. So that's Absolutely. the breakdown. Well, well, we'll see how things go for me. I feel like I want to move toward upholder and, uh, you know, well, we'll uh, – well, we- well, here's one thing, though, yeah. I would say for anyone who sort of doesn't like their tendency. Mm-hmm. Now, all of the tendencies have strengths and weaknesses. All the tendencies include people who are highly successful and also big, big losers. And when you look at who's, you know, people will say, well, who's happiest, who's healthiest, who's most productive, who's most creative? It's not a matter of tendency. It's a matter of like who has figured out how to harness the strengths of their tendency and offset the limitations and weaknesses of their tendency. So if you're an obliger who wishes you were more like an upholder, then you're just like, well, I just need more outer accountability. And then I will be indistinguishable from an upholder. Right. Or like I'm an upholder who wish I was, I was more questioner. My husband's a questioner and I've studied him a lot to see like, sometimes I do things too readily and I should say, why am I doing this? Why, why, do, why am I listening to you? Why am I taking on this work? Like I don't have to do this. So I've learned a lot from studying other tendencies. So we all, we all, there's, there's pros and cons to all these. And so I, so son, I wouldn't think that w- it's not that one evolves into the next. It's more like, how do you evolve within yourself um, to be, um, to meet your own aims, mm-hmm. given what you know about your tendency. Great. And that's what these last two books are really focused on yes. for the most part. Yes. So uh, the name of this podcast is The Media Narrative. And so I, I like to talk about habits around this as well. Um, you know, where there's more media makers than ever before, people like yes. you and me. Uh, there's more media consumed than ever before, plus this political news of the moment, like the Supreme yes. Court stuff. Uh, it, Regardless of your party affiliation, there's just People are really um, finding themselves obsessed with the news probably more than ever before. It's exhausting. So mm-hmm. I kind of have a two-part question. First, I, I just want to know your habits. We've talked about it a little bit, the, all the reading that you do. But how do you take in new information of any kind? Do you read the mm. news? Do you take it in that way? Or, or do you have any techniques for sort of keeping things under control for you? Um, you know, one thing I do is I, re- I really do read the newspaper. I actually get three newspapers a day, physical newspapers. So does my husband. Like wow. we, I feel like we're the only people left <laughs> who would like actually get newspapers. Um, and I really, I really, um, for people who are feeling very drained and overwhelmed by the news, I really recommend the actual newspaper because one, it's limited. Like you, if you want to read, you can go on forever reading even about one single episode or one single subject, and you just can get 
drawn in and drawn in and drawn in. And also newspapers, whatever you say about newspapers, they tend to be more analytical and less emotionally charged than other forms, like certainly social media or television where there's there's music, there's video, there's a lot of commentary, there's punditry, there's people shouting and arguing. Um, you know, the news, it's like, it's, it's very fact-based. It's aimed to be analytical. It's limited. You have the distance that comes from reading words on a page rather than, you know, seeing mm. images. And, and, and so I feel like, um, and I feel like we all do have an obligation as part of our civic, civic duty to be informed. So it's not enough to just be like, well, I'm just going to take a break and for six months have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think most people would not find that to be satisfying. But it's not that like either you know nothing or you spend six hours watching cable news every night. You know, I think you can be informed by um, by finding other less emotionally charged and, and less emotionally draining. Um, and it's interesting because one thing I've seen uh, in my study of habits is that many people will point to the news as like something like, well, of course I started smoking again because of everything that's happening in the news, or I ate an entire pan of peanut butter brownies because of everything that's happening in the news. And to my mind, it's like, what's happening in the news is very, very important, but we need to find ways to manage the news so that we can also not smoke, not eat a pan of peanut butter brownies. Like if it's having that effect on you, maybe step, step back and think, okay, like, how do I, how do I, or how do I take action to live up to my values so that I don't feel like I'm smoking on the sidelines, but I'm actually taking action to make things better. That itself is very energizing, gives you this atmosphere of growth. Um, Cause when, that, when, when kind of that, that uneasiness or that, 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 um, that, that sense of anxiety um, and even, you know, sometimes almost despair happens, um, you know, I remember years ago, somebody was like, oh, of course, like I started smoking again because of Hurricane Sandy. This was somebody who like lived in Illinois. I'm like, yes, it's sad about Hurricane Sandy, but it's, you should be able to manage yourself too. You want to be able to manage yourself as well while this is going on. How do, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you balance that? Um, so I'm a big fan of reading the mm. news. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear it, it. It's good that the print news world gets a little bit of support uh, yeah. every once in a while because it feels like it's it's uh, draining uh, in power and revenue these days. So read newspapers, people. So what's what's next for you in terms of your research and your reading? Where do you see this going? So I have a book coming out in March that's called Outer Order, Inner Calm, because one of the things that I talk about um, since sort of the Happiness Project is this, this observation that for many, many people, outer order contributes to inner calm kind of more than you really rationally think it should. Like, why is it that cleaning out your coat closet makes you feel like you can finish your PhD? Like, they really are not related, but over and over, people would tell me how they felt this way. And I got more and more drawn into it. So I wrote this kind of really kind of light, fun book that's supposed to sort of like get you fired up to tackle your clutter because so many people would say to me, I'm getting this crazy charge out of it, um, even though really it's not that big a deal. Like the person who said to me, I cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. Uh -huh. um, so I'm like, you want to harness that. Um, and so that's coming out in March. Uh, the 10th anniversary edition, a new edition of the Happiness Project is coming out in November. So that's very exciting. Um, and I'm, I have an online course 
um, that's going to be launching in January. That's all about uh, for people who want to do their ha their own happiness projects. It kind of guides you through that. That's something people have asked me for years to do. So I finally did that. I created a four tendencies workshop because a lot of people are like, I want to lead a workshop in right. this. I'm like, okay, I've never created a workshop before, but let's do it. So I, I just launched that. Um, and then of course the podcast, we're coming up on our 200th episode. So that's going to be, Amazing. um, really fun, um, with my sister. So I have a bunch of different, um, kind of irons in the fire. And, um, I think looking forward, I'm getting increasingly drawn to the subject of the five senses, hmm. um, and the idea of wanting to wake up. I feel like a lot of people like me feel like kind of very distracted and in their head. And it's like, how do you wake up? And, uh, I feel, how do you connect? with the world and like, mm. you know, um, and so I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the sense of smell and the sense of touch. And I'm going to write this weird little book about color. Cause I got obsessed with color. Oh, so great. I think, I think that's where I might be headed. Well, and you, you mentioned waking up and inner calm. And yeah. I know at one point I heard you talk about meditation. Is mm -hmm. that part of your daily practice? Does that help you sort of stay no. calm? No, no, it's not, mm -hmm. but you, you have a, no, I've tried it. I've tried it two solid times. Uh, I really gave it a shot yeah. and it just did not work for me. I, I did it. You know, I was good at forming the habit. It was actually kind of hard to break the habit. Um, but yes, I am not a person for whom meditation is helpful. Well, Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for the time today. It was really great to uh, get to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I feel like we could keep talking all day. Learn more about her work at GretchenRubin.com, last name spelled R-U-B-I-N. You'll find her podcast, blog, video course, books, and more there. You know, I really love what Gretchen had to say toward the end about reading newspapers. I read the Washington Post, New York Times, Boston Globe online every day. But when I read a print version of a newspaper with a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning, that always ranks as a high point of a week for me. So with apologies and thanks to Gretchen Rubin, that's my happiness hack for the week. Kids, buy a newspaper. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to The Media Narrative at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hochul. Thank you so much for listening. Music